Did you know that the average human spends 92,000 hours at work during their lifetime? That's more than we spend eating, cleaning, driving, watching TV, or even surfing the internet. In fact, work is what we do most. It comes second only to sleeping. Welcome to 92,000 Hours, the podcast that believes in the integration of life and work. I'm your host, Annalisa Holcomb. Before we begin, I wanted to tell you a quick story about why this podcast is so personal to me. I began practicing law at age 26 and learned many valuable lessons, including that I was deeply unhappy at work. Although I was on a path that looked like traditional success, I realized that I needed to quit my job in order to align myself with my passion and purpose. Now I am dedicated to making sure all of our 92,000 hours at work are spent well instead of simply spent. How do we construct a working world that values and accommodates our humanity? How do we construct a life that is not separate from, but fueled by, the purpose we find in our work? In this podcast, we will explore those questions and more. In each episode, I will speak to someone that demonstrates meaning, passion, and purpose in their work. Join me in discovering what happens when we bring our whole selves to our work, schools, and communities. Today, I am joined by Dr. Mike Bills. Mike is the Chief Client Officer at Atlas RTX, and he holds a PhD in Leadership and Change from Antioch University. He is a leading expert in using technology and data science to improve student learning outcomes. Today, we are discussing failure and growth. Mike is brave and vulnerable enough to share with us what he considers to be his failures and what he learned from them. So let's get started. All right, so let's start with my first question, which is the one that I, it's like the signature. Okay. So if you remove any reference to work, school, sports, volunteerism, church activity, anything like that um, that you would normally put on a resume, what is your greatest accomplishment or what are you most proud about about yourself as a human being? I'm proud that I have become and I've been this way for a long time, self-reliant and adaptable um, so that when shit happened, I could, I could always be okay and take care of myself. Um, and that development has enabled me to do whatever I want to do. Another thing that's helped me do is that I'm grounded too. So when I was, what, you've never been able to tell what my net worth is, um, by anything that um, I may have or even do. It's mm-hmm. been the same uh, in good times and bad. And so being grounded has helped me have freedom mm. to do what I want to do. So when you say that, the way that you started it seems like it comes from a place, right? Like, and like that's the catch part probably but like the answer comes from uh, that you can have freedom that you can that you're grounded that you have the ability to make choices must come from a place where you either didn't have freedom or didn't like what what's that 
It does come from, yeah, it comes from a place that, so those qualities were formed in response to an environment where, yeah, I didn't, I didn't have those to some extent. So it was formed, I mean, I, I can distill it down. I mean, we don't want to get too much into the, into the Freudian world here, but so I was, my mother tried super hard to raise me as in, in the LDS faith. That's her faith and that's cool. At a pretty young age, I decided that was, that was, it was cool for her, not so much for me. And she responded to that by coming up with something that she called the program. Hmm. And so I was about 13, 14 years old when this, when I decided I didn't want to. So my mom thought that the best way to show me the love of Jesus Christ in the Mormon church was this program. The, and the, if I went to church, I was on the program. And if I didn't, I was off. The consequences of which were I couldn't, I essentially was cut off from the family. I couldn't eat a meal with them. I couldn't get a ride anywhere. I couldn't, like, um, she wouldn't do my laundry. Um, I couldn't do something as, as, as banal as just sit with the family and watch TV. So I was just... Like ostracized. Yeah, so I was kind of like, a, like a, just a boarder in the house. So they'd eat dinner, my mom clean everything up, and then I'd come in later and, and I would... So, Wow. So I assume she thought that that would again help me see the love of Jesus Christ in the Mormon Church, and I, and I come in. I didn't. Um, I so I just had to start to f- take care of of all my stuff myself. Self reliance yeah. was what you learned from that. That's right. So and probably some pain. Yeah. Yeah. Certainly. But um, yeah. So I'll you know I'll be f- I'm super flippant about it now. I'll say well that's. There's so much about what I what I do as as a result of that. I'm pretty sure my love of cycling came because I had to get myself around, and I learned how to cook. So I still like I still like to cook, and strangely enough, I still I do all my own laundry. It it I don't even like Amy or the kids to do. Is like I'll just look. I'll just take care of my my stuff. I got. It. Um, but yeah, so that self reliance uh, came from from. Well, it started there. Awesome. And it's, it, it ended up serving you well. I think yes. that's really interesting because I sometimes tell people that, that, and I say it flippantly, like one of the benefits for me of growing up in an alcoholic household was that I'm very even keeled. Like, you know, it could be great or it could be terrible. And I'm like, cool. What, what, I got I can handle this. Sure. What, yeah. Ups and downs are not a problem for me. <laughs> yeah. It was learned. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. So... So you and I agreed to talk about something today that I know I'm personally a little bit uncomfortable talking about because I don't have a ton of experience facilitating conversation around, but, um, but I'm also really intrigued by it. And when I was putting it together, I was reading some information about failure because A, I'm starting my own business and so I'm interested in what that might feel like, look like. Um, but uh, of course, then I juxtaposed it with growth because I think those are, that's it seems like they go together or they might not. And so I'm interested in having a conversation with you about those things because I think that you might be willing to have that conversation. I bet you have interesting things to say about it. <laughs> yeah, well, I also have a lot of expertise. <laughs> so at least I have a lot of experience. If it doesn't... Um... <laughs> we'll call it expertise. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. So um, just I'm interested in 
just hearing from you about that, like how would you define both of those subjects generally? Like how do you think about them and how do they show up in your life? Like what, what is it, what does it mean to you when I say we're going to talk about failure and growth? Well, I'll just go into the experiences that I would go there. So I had a very, uh, I had a high school experience that you, particularly as a parent, my God, would just be awful to, to to have your kid go through this. And most people would certainly characterize it as a failure. So I ended up spending the, basically, almost all of the 11th grade in an adolescent drug rehab. Hmm. So, which turned out to be a wildly interesting and educational way to spend the 11th grade. I still don't know how I know how to do any math or how to read, (laughs) but I learned a lot of cool stuff uh, (laughs) while I was in this, this treatment center. And I wasn't an inpatient the whole time, but it was, so first of all, it was wildly disorienting and and kind of scary to be 16 years old and then one day you know you're and of course I was in there for some reasons the reasons weren't necessarily that I had some hardcore drug problem I had you know I had Mormon mom I was a I was good when I decided I was going to get in a party and I did it well Uh, but um, so you know I drank a bunch smoked tons of weed did tons of acid did uh, did a little bit of cocaine I, I, I sampled from the buffet and, um, but I was starting to have all the symptoms of, of substance abuse. Like I was almost never going to school. Mm-hmm. Uh, and well, I would go to school to arrange parties that we would have elsewhere school. during school oh. in a lot of cases. And we would charge for them and we'd figure out ways to shuttle kids back and forth, like to go to class and such. Um, but yeah, things were starting to, the, the problems were starting to mount. Um, and so my parents put me into this, into this rehab. And so I lost my freedom. Mm. So I, I was sitting there and realizing, uh, and I was, I was smart enough to not buy into the bullshit that the rehab people told, and my parents that this was just an evaluation for a few days. Like, no, it's not. No, um, they got me. I'm gonna be here for a while. <laughs> I might as well settle in. Um, well, at first, so it was really t- tough to go, oh my God, in my whole life. And when you're 16, of course, these things are, they're massive. And it's hard to, it's hard to understand that it's not that big of a deal that you're probably never going back to the high school that you, mm-hmm. from which you just came. And you're probably not going to see those friends anymore. And you're going to have to start over. So for a little while, that was pretty scary yeah but just not not too long because then there then came a sense of relief because all these problems that I had because I also had some legal problems that that were out there um, and I was gonna have school problems too because I hadn't been going they were kind of solved Hmm. Um, so there was a sense of relief and then it's like I think I think this is gonna this is gonna end up being okay but and so that I just felt like this huge failure Mm-hmm. And I and I just thought everybody that's all they saw in me was like this big scarlet, I guess R for rehab or whatever. Right. Uh, that that's the only so that's the way people identify like def- me. Yeah, that's your defining feature. That's right, and and that was that was that was tough. Yeah. Um, 
But then when I finally, the next, when I can't, when I'm done with that experience and I was able to go back to like regular high school and it did you go to the same school? No, no. It was a pretty mutual understanding that we probably weren't a good fit anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I went to a different high school for my senior year of high school and it now, I knew tons of the people there um, because I was a baseball player and a wrestler, so I knew all the, the guys that did those sports. And uh, but it, So it was interesting to come into a new high school my senior year where everybody knew I was drug rehab guy too. Right. So that made it interesting. So it was fun because I also had like all the, all the people that were into that kind of stuff. Pretty soon I knew all them too. So it... A lot of people that if you go to a new high school your senior year, you're, it's lonely. You don't have it. I had the best freaking time. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but, um, but I also, I didn't want, I felt like a loser because of just, again, that. So even though, even though I wasn't going to be lonely, I needed to prove to myself that I could not be a loser. Mm. And so I had never, ever tried at school at all. It's, I still, I don't know how I know how to read or anything because I didn't ever open the books. I had a pretty spotty attendance record. Somehow my grades were never all that bad, but I, I, I don't know you how You didn't try. I didn't. Um, and I tried. And I tried, damn, I specifically t- uh, took the hardest classes that were offered, and I did great. And that was great. See, like you talk about this thing that Mm -hmm. felt like a failure, Mm -hmm. and then you had to prove to yourself that you could be successful and you were successful. Mm -hmm. So when I was reading some stuff Mm -hmm. in preparation for this conversation, I I read a quote that's attributed to Bill Gates. I don't know if it really is his, but it says, success is a lousy teacher. It seduces smart people into thinking they can't lose. Ah, that's great. (laughs) Right? Yeah. And I wonder how that, like, so I would be interested in getting into that with you as well as like within like here's your failures here's your successes and and you should totally put a pin on that because that has extreme relevance in my career Hmm. um where i thought yeah i could do no wrong and then when i did it was holy shit what a no what it shocked you yeah yeah interesting so it would have been great if my drug rehab failure had been the only life lesson that I ever needed and that was enough for me to get my <laughs> act together uh, so it was enough to get you through your senior year not well yeah it was um, so I but it wasn't enough for so I had and I was kind of clueless into I had this insouciance that somehow I just thought everything was going to work out fine for me I didn't so the, the fact that I didn't really try hard at school that you know that I I just knew somehow everything was going to be great. I didn't know what that was going to be like, but, you know, it's, I'm good, I'm fine. Um, I'm not just fine, I'm better than fine. Hmm. And I... I can get through anything. That's right. And part of, and part of having that 11th grade drug reaction experience, I saw so much misery and the, and I had to go to, I don't, I probably went to that year about a hundred um, AA, NA meetings that they make you go to. So I was... I was around all of these older people that had really done stuff, that had hit bottom, and I thought, mm-hmm. you know, I thought I'd hit a bottom by being tossed into this rehab as a 16-year-old kid and not being able to be with my buddies anymore. 
that was an interesting learning experience just about life and and so like the 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 petty crap of high school that seems really meaningful to you when you're a student that 11th grade drug rehab year man it's stripped all that away like i just didn't i was so not worried about any of that stuff anymore mm-hmm. because i'd seen that there's a much bigger complicated world with real problems right um but at the end of so about three or four, maybe two weeks or so after high school, I learned that a girl that I was kind of involved with was pregnant with my child. Wow. Um, so wow. Yeah. So that was a that was another like super disorienting, like holy shit. Um, and that was an interesting conversation with my dad. Wow. I told my stepmom first because she was somebody that I, that I could talk to about anything. And she could keep, she was fine. She wasn't going to judge me. Um, she was there for me. My dad, not so much. Um, my dad um, was a kind of mildly well-functioning but wildly alcoholic guy. And mm. so, yeah, I know the same thing of... of of, of trying to navigate where the where on the spectrum he was at the moment and when he got quiet that's when it was really scary, scary. yeah <laughs> and so he said to me he said a few things in my life that have stuck with me and this was one that, that actually I'm surprised because um, but it, it ended up resonating with me it's like son you've touched every base drugs crime I can't remember what third base was but and now you got a girl pregnant yeah you hit the grand slam up wow um and yeah so that's about as like white trash a set of of as as I could imagine and then and you know then he walked off and you know normally I would have pithy responses when my dad would say stuff like that. Because I remember one time when I was um, going, doing some of my um, things that got me tossed into rehab, I remember him telling me that the only two things you're going to be successful at is being a criminal and being a gigolo. <laughs> I'm like, well, that'll just be in my spare time. You know? And I thought, and I kind of took that as a compliment, but this time... When he said those things to me, I, I actually, it actually hit me. Like, and it hurt a lot. Wow, like if, holy shit, you know, he's right. If somebody had described me to me, and you know, I didn't know who that person was, like, oh yeah, that's, that guy sounds like a loser. Wow. Um, so it was, yeah, not like it was just that magic moment and then immediately after things changed, but... Um, things changed shortly thereafter. And that's where I realized like, oh my God, I really gotta make some changes here. And oh my God, I also got this situation that I don't know what- What to do. What to do. Yeah. Um, and I mean, and the child ended up being put up for adoption and that was that had nothing to do with anybody's, um, it, it didn't have to do with any values of any kind. It had to do with um, I didn't even become aware about it till till abortion was too late. And again, it's not my choice to make anyway. 
Um, and the the um, the girl, we weren't close. Um, so us to coming Being together a couple was wasn't not. Yeah, that wasn't in the cards. Um, and so it, that ended up being the, the the best choice. And it and that was a major. And again, that's the kind of thing that people would characterize, perhaps, as a failure. I know my mother did. Um, oh, really? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, it, it was a really hard thing for her to, for her to accept. Um, and, yeah, but it, it affected me a, a great deal. And, I, and I, did, I went to the hospital, and I... And I and wow. Wow. Where to to make sure because if you know if the father doesn't doesn't sign off on this, the, sometimes they show back up. So I made sure that there wasn't any any of that loose end. Um, saw saw the child. So I let this stuff really sink in, um, and then I started to work real hard to get my shit together. Uh, so and again, thank God for for. Salt Lake Community College being an open access institution that will let you in, uh, in spite of my lack of, of preparedness. Um, and, <laughs> and I attendance and, and I took it and I took school and it was just the best place in the world for me. Oh. Um, and I loved being a college student instead of a high school student. Um, I did, it was just great. If this conversation has caught your attention and you want to join in on conversations like this, check out our website at connectioncollaborative.com. Welcome back. You're listening to 92,000 Hours, and today we are chatting with Mike Bills. When I think about failure, I'm also thinking about success. And I think it's interesting because we often talk about uh, business success. And through my experience having big, long conversations with people that are a little more deep, I've learned a lot about people who are very professionally successful who then would tell me about their personal failures and that it's not, but we don't talk about that in the world. So we often don't hear how, how often those things might be closely collaborated, right? Like the, those things can go together in ways that we don't talk about all the time. Yes. And that result in pain and surprise. Yeah. Yeah, so, so I, I ended up creating a list of things that I wanted to do with my life. Um, and some of them were big, some of them were small. Uh, I wanted to learn how to play the guitar. Uh, I wanted to finish college. Uh, I wanted to get an advanced degree. I didn't really care what that was. Uh, I wanted to write a book. I wanted to own, own my own business. Oh, I wanted to run a marathon, do a triathlon. I don't remember what else was on the what else was on the list, but um, 
That was, but that was helpful because, and also some of those things seemed impossible, especially because working as much as I did, some of those were like, how am I Where ever going to time for that? I'm, I get a guitar guy to come to my office, but everything else seemed kind of, uh, kind of out of reach. But, um, but that was, I mean, geez, that was 22 years ago that I wrote that list, and I'm pretty sure I just, that I just recounted every single item on it. Because you uh, thought about it so often in those 22 years? Yeah, yeah. Um, so that was, a, you know, that, was a, that was a failure. Um, frankly, I didn't improve. I really started to, I started to improve. I really started to improve when I, when I uh, came to Westminster for my MBA. Really? Yeah. What do you uh, think that? Well, that did, a, that, did, that did a couple things. So it, uh, I had to get really good with my time then. And Amy was super suspicious. Like, she's like, are you serious? You're going to do some other thing? And of course I got pissed. Like, you should support me. What's wrong with you? I'm trying to better myself and... Our um, family. That's right. Where's your, where's your support? Um, but I promised her, said, I will only take time away from business. I, the only time I take from this, and I, and I even kind of budgeted that out. Well, when you're not going to work 80 hours a week, um, you have to get more efficient with your time. And so since I was taking that time uh, where I would normally work, man, I realized I wasted so much damn time. So much of the time that I was at the office was just to be at the office to be the guy that was there first and there the last and there on the weekends just to prove a point. Uh, and then, so I had to stop and realize that a lot of this time is just stupid. It doesn't matter. Nobody cares about that. I'm in, I'm in some contests with people that they don't even know that they're in. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but I'm winning it and it's, and it's important to me. So, uh, so yeah, I started to get better and realize uh, just how to, how to work better with my time. And, and my life, in a lot of ways, seemed really successful because, yeah, I, I mean, it's, and at a young age, I made a lot of money. I had a high-profile position. Um, you know, I ended up on the cover of Utah Business Magazine when I was an MBA student. Um, I have to do this. Nothing was easy for me. Nothing is. And I just, and of course... The hole that I was feeling, I mean, nobody on the outside cared. It was just, it was all was about you? me. It was like, I had this huge hole inside of me that was based on being, you know, the, the kid that couldn't eat dinner with the family mm -hmm. um, and the guy with the drug rehab uh, scarlet letter mm -hmm. and the guy that knocked up a girl in high school. Yeah, so I was filling those holes. Um, so it was a really cool thing with, uh, with Dick Fontaine who... Um, From Master Track. Yeah. At Westminster. Right. So he he had he could relate to some of this stuff from his own life. So it so he, he and he's the one that pointed out to me, he came up with this really cool metaphor to to help me with this. And it was the, the soldiers, the Japanese soldiers that kept being found like in the Philippines after World War Two had been over for a few years that they were still fighting the war. Mm -hmm. And so he called it Tojo. He's like, let's just call this thing because I, because it was easy to, when I worked with him to realize that I'm trying to fill this unworthiness gap that I have. Um, and, he, and he characterized it as being like one of those soldiers that he's like, you won. You won the war. So 
Um, and this thing inside of you helped you. Because one of the things he asked me, and he asked me a good question, he said, if you could have anything, what would it be? And, I, and it was so easy for me to answer. It's like, I just wish the voice in my head that was telling me that I'm not worthy would shut up. Wow. Just, just give me the peace there. I hate it. And that's, so that's where wow. I like, <laughs> That hurts me. So when he came up, when, when he talked about it, he's like, you won. I mean, look, you've got this, your wife is so cool. And you're this really successful triathlete and really successful executive and you know you're and you're a really good student in this in this really good MBA program you won and the fact that this is what this is what drove you yeah well while it's not it doesn't necessarily it worked so since you won you can honor this that this is what made it work but you don't have to do that for that reason anymore, anymore. It doesn't, it's not going to serve you now. Yeah. So now, of course, just the realization in that conversation didn't just say, okay. But the great thing about it is that when that starts to, to swell up, I'm at least aware of it. Wow. And I got a name for it. It's like, you know, that's Tojo. Uh, that's so good. That's so good. Yeah. Yeah. That, um, and then it's less personal. It's like, oh, it's this thing. That's it's right. It's not me. It's this thing. That's right. And but the cool part of that mentor that mentorship with Fonte so even though it came from this MBA program again it had very very little to do with if I asked a question about uh, a financial statement would <laughs> might help me out on it but it wasn't and in fact um, it was through that mentorship that I ended up deciding to quit my job. See, um, but that's I mean the best the best attribute is that of that is that. You came in thinking that you were going to work on things to help you be better in business. Totally. And what you learned is how to be you. So I mentioned how I decided to quit my job. And it was, it was not long after I was on the cover of that magazine. I quit about three weeks after I finished my MBA. Hmm. Uh, I had come to the... But, and I come to a couple of, um, of lousy conclusions. So one of them had to do with fear. Like, why wasn't I going and doing these other things with my with my life part of it, I didn't know what I wanted to do I put on that list I wanted to own my own business but I'm not a inventor and I at that point I thought that's what entrepreneurship meant is inventing something like inventing this iPhone or right. uh, I, that's I'm not I'm not that creative I'm clever um, and smart but I'm not creative and I have bad taste and <laughs> so I, um, I didn't know what to do, and that was bothering me. And I remember, so the chief financial officer where I worked, he asked when Amy was pregnant with our first child, he asked me what I wanted to name, and we knew it was a boy, what I wanted to name him. And I, and I said to him, I said, I've narrowed it down to every possible name except one. Um, he, there's not going to be a Mike Jr. So, and, uh -huh. and, he, and he said, but why? You should want to, you know, pass that on, and 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 um, and which says to your son that that you want him to be like, you know, like you. And it was just like I don't, I don't want him to be like me. You want him I to want be him, him to be is I don't want him to be perhaps anything like me. Um, and and part of it was because it was I felt 
So even though, yeah, I was on the cover of this, it, it, that unworthiness stuff was still present, and I, kind of, to some extent, felt like a fraud. Hmm. So because I wasn't doing anything all that... I wasn't doing anything what I thought was, was cool, impressive. I had lucked into this place being a gifted telemarketer that then, that then you know, I ended up being one of the senior leaders of that business. Um, it just seemed like luck, and I, it wasn't deliberate. I just fell into a river and then went where the river took me. So it just didn't seem like that. Uh, that Strategic or thoughtful. Or, yeah. 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 So, um, or purposeful, even. The, it wasn't purposeful at all. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, when I quit, and I still wasn't sure what I was going to do, I just knew I needed to not be at that same business anymore. Um, Oh my God, that was disorienting, because that that uh, then, so because I was the successful business guy, I was on this magazine. That's what I was. So it was real easy for me to answer the co- the cocktail party question. What do you do? Right. Because because that's what we ask. We always ask, "What do you do?" It's not, the first who are thing you? you ask. No. Uh, what do you do? And like, I don't I, nothing. <laughs> I don't have a job right now. Yeah, I was really spun out. Uh, so that was a disorienting thing, but it didn't last long. And of course, then I and after about six months um, of searching for a business to buy, which again Dick Fontaine actually helped me come up with some criteria. Then I ended up buying a business, and and that and then this whole new thing took off. Took off with the we ended up doubling the revenue of that first business within a year and a half, and that put us in a position to then go and step up and buy a much bigger company that manufactured the stuff that we were that we were distributing. So um, you bought a manufacturing company. I bought a man, uh, uh, yes, and where and guaranteed it with your house. That's right. Uh, yeah, you know, long story short on all this, um, I went from thinking that I was cr- so insanely successful, literally running two YPO qualified businesses because they both had the revenue levels. Like everybody else here in our YPO chapter, you only got one business. I got two, two bitches. <laughs> I'm amazing. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, um, and then it didn't take long where I didn't have one because to, take, to deal with the bank issues there, we ended up having to sell the manufacturing company um, and fortunately, and, and during that, it got really scary because we tripped so many covenants. As soon as I realized that, that, that my borrowing bases were wrong, at least I went and told them. I didn't wait for some, somebody to figure it out um, at, the, at the bank. Um, I went and told them, knowing that they could lose their shit, they could call the notes, they could. Um, but, and they tried to, they, they for you know, signed a forbearance for a while, um, and then ultimately they lost patience. And then they sued us for mm-hmm. that $5.5 million. Wow, so scary. Yeah, it was, it was unbelievably scary. And, and they did so because they'd known that, well, we'd had this windfall from this other company. So like, they just went through the, it, it made so much sense. I was furious at the time. Made so much sense. Like the quickest path for them to recovery was just go sue the guarantors because they got the money. So let's take it so right now before it's gone. Around. Like, let's just go do this quick. You know, we don't have to help them with some workout plan on the bill. We don't need to do any of that. Those guys have the money. So they took it. No, we managed to we we managed to get this taken care of. Um, so 
but it was I mean it was just un, it was just unbelievable um, that you were this on top of the mountain on top of the world guy and now you're struggling to go how do I keep my house that's right it, now, now the go broke and there goes your house thing that I joked about could really happen um, yeah that was a that was a it was a really tough thing but another really bad thing happened the worst thing that's ever happened in my life it happened it happened 16 days before they filed that suit which was the day after christmas by the way wow i got yeah i got an email from my lawyer um that like yeah merry christmas they might um yeah on so that was december 26th of 2000 on December 10th of 2013, my younger brother committed suicide. Oh, my God. Yeah, so the, the upside of, of, and we were very close, uh, and the upside of, of that, if there is one, is that when that lawsuit comes, you're like, that's bad, very bad, and I could lose all my stuff, um, but it's not that bad. In the grand scheme of tragedy, yeah, it's not. It's not losing that. your brother is the no, and and of course the the when Zion sued us, I mean this had been going on for a while, so it wasn't a real surprise. It's like okay, they lost patience. I understand. We've got to deal with it. Um, but all the way along, I had been worried about my God. There's a chance that we could go personally bankrupt here if right. we can't, you know, if we can't figure this out. And that's a that's a humbling thought. Um, but, and, I, and the thing I kept thinking about is my kids. Like, I didn't want to disrupt my kids' lives by going personally bankrupt. So I kept thinking about how would I make sure that their lives are more or less undisturbed if I, have to, you know, if I, if I had to file for personal bankruptcy. Um, but when my brother committed suicide, and his kids were 16 and 14 at the time, and he was found in his garage by a 16-year-old son. Um, you know, they lost their father. If and Luke had had some, he had some, he had all kinds of issues, um, and there were financial things that were part of it. And it was um, they; th- those two kids could have cared less about whatever whatever issues that could have been related to material things. Um, they just but, wanted know, their they, dad. They, yeah, they lost their dad, and so that. So anyway, all that stuff swirled around at that time because I didn't I didn't want to see people and, and but but there's another interesting component that's that's tied up with suicide and that's stigma surrounding suicide. Right. So it's a really difficult death to accept. It's also a di- it was it's a difficult thing for other people to 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 know about. It's like what's wrong with that family when when this dude commits suicide. So there was there was a whole lot that was. I was spending all my time either worrying about things um, that, that might have, that at least had the, the, the chance of happening, and grieving. Wow. That was it. It was, it was a, it, I mean, if I was awake and I wasn't skiing or riding my, it was during the ski season. So if I was awake and I wasn't skiing or working out, um, that's all I did. It was a shift right into it uh, and just worry and grieve. Oh. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I went through, so riding that, riding that wave of just bit where I could do nothing wrong, 
then it felt like for a, for a while that that's all I could do, and yeah. all there was was wrong. My question is, um, when something like like when you, when failure happens, how important are the support structures or the support people mm-hmm. around you? Like in your experience. So in my experience, there were a couple things that made all of this uh, where I could survive and then ultimately thrive uh, coming out of it. The biggest support structure was, so I had, I have a, a really strong, healthy marriage and I have a great relationship with my kids and I have so many dear friends, like real important meaningful friendships not just superficial Hmm. um and those relationships were they were so important where so i could at least so i could i could isolate where it wasn't that i me as a person was a total failure like i just had some this area this activity business issues and and i also it was also easy to I think that's really important, though, to, like, make sure that we separate that out. I mean, like, just for people who are listening, that by having those structures, you could could separate that the failure was this activity. This Mm -hmm. thing failed, not you. Right. Yeah. And also, and again, as I had some time to reflect on this, I didn't, I don't want to be the CEO of a private equity-owned business. That's a, there are people that love that and are awesome at it. I don't want to do that. You learned. I just don't, and I so I got the, I got the opportunity to, to 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 pretend to be one for a year and a half. I don't want to do that ever again. Mm-hmm. And fortunately, I don't have to, because I know how to net, to do this smaller self-funded thing, and I'm doing it again now, and it's doing really well. And this is like your sweet spot. This is my, and again, it's, yes, it's because it's tied up with what I've learned about and care about in higher education. And so it's totally aligned with my, with my core values, which is the first time I've done anything in my career that's Mm. really aligned with, with, with my values. So it's awesome. Thank you, Mike, for your time today and your willingness to discuss such a difficult topic. You can learn more about Mike by connecting with him on LinkedIn. Next week, I will be joined by Colin Bunker for our final episode of the first season of 92,000 Hours. Colin is the Director of Solutions Architecture at Presidio, a nationwide enterprise IT integrator. Simply put, Colin is the go-to person for me and so many others on all things IT, database administration, and cybersecurity. Most importantly, Colin is a loyal and dedicated employee, leader, mentor, and friend. And he was willing to talk with us about our final subject for season one, love. We hope you'll join us. As always, thank you for listening to 92,000 Hours. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review. We really appreciate your support. If you're interested in integrating the personal and professional through authentic conversation, just like you heard on our episode today, please check out our work at Connection Collaborative. 
You can find us at ConnectionCollaborative.com or send me an email at Annalisa at ConnectionCollaborative.com. Thank you and see you next week on 92,000 Hours. Ninety-two thousand hours is made possible by Connection Collaborative. This episode was produced and edited by Brianna Stegel. Lexi Banks is our marketing director, and I'm your host, Annalisa Holcomb.